So was, when I was in college, uh, I was a communications major, and in my school, uh, that was super broad. Uh, it was a huge department, and so what that meant was some people were like going into like film. Um, I took a class where we read the whole uh, script of The Silence of the Lambs and like studied it, and all the way to the other side of like critiquing the message of, of, of social, uh, it was the very beginning of like when social media was starting, all that kind of stuff. And so one of the classes I took was a marketing class. And in that class, we had a segment where we picked apart the, the tricks and the, the tips of, of advertising, in particular of food. That was the example. Obviously, there's advertising of all sorts. But in, my, in this class, we studied food advertising. And so, you know, obviously millions and billions of dollars go into marketing food to us, right? Like, it's always on TV, online, now in YouTube ads, etc. A lot of companies spend money, huge sums of money to get us to buy, you know, their soda, their, their beverage, their burger, whatever, and it works. We spend a lot of money on food, and the crazy thing is, you and I, we all know that what is seen on the ad versus what you're actually going to get is very different, but that doesn't keep us from buying it anyway. Uh, we still do it no matter how great the letdown is and, and how even sometimes the, the, the gap is, is pretty gross. And so let's do the, sim the, the best example that I can think of, of of the Big Mac, the almighty Big Mac. Here on the, on the right side, you have the advertisement, or on the left and on the right, you have the, the real thing. This does not look like each other, like it's the same thing, right? Like that on the left, it looks really good. I would totally eat that. The thing on the right, I would eat that too, actually. But, but let, let, me, let, me, let me rephrase. Let me rephrase. Sorry. The thing on the left, I would eat happily, let's say. The thing on the right, I would be half partially depressed and questioning my life at that moment, but I'd still eat it. But the reason why the thing on the left looks so good is because a lot of that actually isn't food. Um, and there are, there's a lot of money and professionals, like food makeup artists, who prepare it so that they can get the perfect photo to entice, you know, the potential customer. So, uh, you, I mean, it's kind of a blurry photo. It's projected. But the real photo, the, the, the meat is glistening. And that's actually not oil or fat that came off the grill. It's very likely hairspray or another product that would make something shine in a photo with the lighting. The cheese, that might not be cheese at all. The lettuce is probably real. They often do use real lettuce, but each piece is like placed in the exact right spot, sometimes glued there so that it won't move. Everything is curated for the perfect photo. And let me reveal to you some of the other uh, tricks of the trade. So let's take cereal, for example, right? This is an average cereal uh, photo that is in an advertisement. But often we don't notice certain things that don't make sense. So for example, why is it all floating so perfectly at the top? Cereal doesn't do that. It sinks. Cereal also gets soggy. The milk covers it. It starts changing color and getting a little, like, stale looking. How does it look so perfectly crisp? Well, the trick is that that's not milk. It's glue. Elmer's glue is perfectly white, and it's a sticky, like, substance that anything would be able to sit at the top of, and it won't make it soggy. So it's not even real milk in the picture. You ever have pancakes on Sunday, Saturday mornings or Sunday mornings and wonder why yours can't stack up so beautifully like that? It's because real pancakes don't do that. They're heavy. They're droopy. 
and they don't create this like big tower from what is that like six six pancakes or so they're they're flattened and the reason why it gets so tall is because there's actually pieces of cardboard between each pancake that allows it to get so so high and syrup like think about if you pour syrup on your pancake and you leave it there for like 30 seconds it absorbs right so you know you get those dark spots on your pancakes it doesn't just glimmer and shine all over this. And the reason why they're able to do that in this picture is because that's not syrup. It's motor oil. This is what's going on top of the pancakes in all the advertisements. Motor oil has just the right color, the right viscosity, and it won't be absorbed into the pancake. So these tips and tricks and, and the money investment, the hiring of food makeup experts, the fact that that career even exists, the research into selling a food product, it, it's the reason why the advertisers are able to spend so much money on this because they know something that's been universally true about human beings since the beginning. It's a very, very simple fact that I want to state, but one that is super impactful. It's that we care a ton about appearances we care so much about how things look, how they are displayed, what's on the exterior. We care way too much about what's on the outside. Our eyes are really what does the buying, right? We are moved by what we see. We can't help but be drawn by the way something or someone looks. We care a lot more about that than the quality of the product or what's on the inside. That's why millions of dollars are spent on ads, like for, for a Big Mac by McDonald's. Do you ever think for a second, what if they spent that money on the product itself? I can't even begin to fathom the marketing budget for a company like McDonald's. What if even 10% of that were shifted into making the beef a little bit better? But they don't need to do that, nor do they care to do that, because the product quality can stay low. That's not gonna keep you and me from buying it. They just need to present well to the public, regardless of the quality of the product. It's about presentation. And this is something that all of us do. It's a stumbling block for every single human being on planet Earth. There's a question that we have is that whether we're going to invest in the exterior presentation of ourselves, or is our investment going to be on the quality of the heart, the interior of our character? And it's both sides of the coin. Not only do we need to ask that question to ourselves for me, but also in how I look at you and how you look at me. Because we do the same thing to others. We're more attracted by how people present as opposed to being curious about what's on the inside, the quality of one's being, of their heart, of their character. We make judgments on other people based upon how they look very often. And what we've known about God, man, it's the Holy Spirit, right? Speaking of Samuel, uh, Samuel's prayer, what God spoke to uh, the prophet Samuel and he warned Israel is, I don't care about the outside. God says, God does not look at the things that people look at. People look at the exterior, but God looks at the heart. And that's what I want to talk about today, about God's lack of concern about how we look and how everything is presented, but the authenticity of what's inside of all of us. He's looking at our hearts. And so this morning, as we go through another message in our Lenten series, as we're marching towards Good Friday and Easter, which is just around the corner, uh, we'll spend a moment on the, the Tuesday of the original Holy Week in Mark chapter 12. Here's what Mark writes. 
As he taught, Jesus said, Watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the place of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. And Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts. But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So in this morning's passage, Jesus is comparing three different groups of people. Group one, we have the teachers of the law, which he started with. Group two are the rich people who are giving to the temple treasury. And then third and lastly is the poor widow who's also giving to the temple treasury. And so we'll take a look very briefly at how or in what ways he highlights each of these three groups. So first we have the teachers of the law. Jesus says they walk around in flowing robes so they can be respected and put in places of honor. And when he's talking about flowing robes, he's not saying, he's not just saying, oh, they're always overdressing. It's not like someone should, uh, gets invited to a dinner party or a Christmas party. Instead of wearing, you know, a button down or a dress or a sweater, they come in a tuxedo and a gown. It's, it's not about overdressing. So these flowing robes that Mark writes here, what he's actually describing are prayer shawls. So these would be, uh, the, 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 you know, things that they have on their shoulders. It would have tassels usually. And this distinguished them as religious leaders, as rabbis or scholars. So in some ways, it's kind of like a work uniform. And this would actually, having this on would, oh, you, you're, a, uh, you know, you're a religious leader. And so they would actually gain more respect and be put in places of prestige. It would lead people to address them like with honorifics and things like that. But so, so to have to own the uniform or to wear it in certain times is not the issue. Why are they wearing it in the marketplace is the issue. Why are you wearing that piece of garb when you could just be wearing your street clothes? It's not for the function. It's for the respect because they always want to be seen as somebody who, who should be respected and honored in public. To me, like, I, this isn't like the perfect example, but the best modern day example would be if you invited your friends, hey, like, come over, let's, let's watch the game and have dinner at my place. And you have a friend who's a doctor and they come in their, their white coat. Like, wh- why are you wearing that here? Or, or let's say you have a friend who's a decorated athlete who, who won in a, a competition or like an Olympic medal or something, and they wore their medal all the time to hangouts. Like you're bowling with your friends, and they have their like you know their medal like dangling from their neck. Why would anybody do that? It's for show. It's not for function or even for fashion. It's because Jesus is saying these guys who are wearing their prayer shawls in the marketplace. They're hungry for respect. All the while, and he judges them harshly, they take advantage of people, particularly widows. Hungry for respect while belittling and disrespecting the people that God calls us to care for the most. So we move from the marketplace. Now we're in the temple courts where people are giving their offerings. And it's the second group of people that we find that Jesus is comparing. Rich people giving. 
Mark writes that many people, rich people, threw in large amounts. And there's a lot of nuance, like detail, that we need to like kind of dig a little bit to, to, to figure out here. Because how would Jesus know how much people are giving? Just because he's watching. If you're watching at a distance, and, and generally it's not like a bucket is passed around. It's, it's just a, uh, usually a box, like in the center where people would go and drop off and, and walk away. Unless Jesus is like doing this and like, you know, like watching. Them, how would he even know how much rich people are giving? Let, let's think about it if, if in our context when we used to pass around the bucket. If I wrote a check, you know, Cornerstone Church of Boston, and, put, and I folded it in my hand and the offering bucket passed by and I did this, you would never know whether I give $1 or 1000 but you would if I made a show of it, if I made sure the check was wide open and I placed it down on top, or if I was giving cash and I, you know, the bucket came by and I weighed, oh, I'm not ready. You know, I put it, pull out my wallet, 100, 200, and then place that in. If I did it discreetly, you wouldn't know how much, whether I was being lavish in my giving or stingy. These people are putting on a show. Back then, they weren't writing checks, right? Usually there was coins made out of some sort of metal. And so the throwing in is very interesting because uh, Mark uses the verb, the poor widow put in her coins, and the rich people threw in large amounts. So most likely we're talking about loud clanging of clunk of a heavy, weighty bag or amount of coins that were worth a lot of money being placed into the thing. They're putting on a show. They're giving to the temple work, not out of purity of heart to support the work of the temple, but to gain the respect and the admiration of those who are watching. Look at me, clank, you hear how heavy this is? And lastly, thirdly, the poor widow. This person, who on the exterior, based upon appearances, is the least important person in the area. Forgettable, insignificant, ignorable. And not only is she poor, she doesn't have a name. Marcus just calls her poor widow. She's poor, which is already, like, you know, you know, strikes on her. But in the ancient Near East, where women already faced a lot of marginalization, she's a widow. She's not even married. That just makes it all that much worse. People were not paying attention to, people were looking down on people like this. And Mark writes this, that a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. So these coins that she put in were the least valuable coins in circulation of the day, essentially near worthless. So she was giving an offering to support the work of the temple, but really she gave nothing at all. It's, 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 it, doesn't, it doesn't help. Imagine if Cornerstone hosted a fundraiser for missions in the lobby. Like, oh, we'll give out coffee, support the work, and somebody came in and brought a penny. It's like, here. It, like, why, like, why are you even giving this? To, it's, it's a waste of my time to deposit this penny to the bank. It, like, it's just, we're not even going to, to, to take it. She contributes nothing to the work of the temple. She's the least important person present. She's the most lowly based upon her status and her appearance. She's the lowest on the, on the, on the rungs of social status. But... She's the one and the only one who receives praise from Jesus. She's the one who's made an example of. She becomes the model of discipleship. Look what Jesus does in, in honoring and lifting up this woman and her character. He calls his disciples to him. 
verse 43 says. And Jesus says, truly I tell you. Whenever he starts a sentence that way, it's emphasis. Hey, hey, pay attention. Look at this. He's, he's probably looking at his disciples in the eye. Hey, hey, come over here, come over here. Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty put in everything, all she had to live on. So this poor widow is our model of discipleship because of the state of her heart, because of the inside. Through her offering, she showed an undivided heart of devotion to God. She put all she had to live on. She literally gave everything because of her undivided devotion. She wasn't there for people to see her. She wasn't dressed up in a certain way or acting in a certain way or giving in a certain way so people would look at her and be like, oh, wow, what a good person. She was there to worship God and God only, undivided in her devotion. So in this Lenten season, as we work towards Good Friday and Easter again, let's do some spiritual auditing of ourselves. Let's ask and look in the mirror and ask, how much power does my appearance or appearances, how others think about me, about my longing for respect and admiration, how much does that alter my actions, my devotion, my following God, the callings that I have in life, and how I conduct myself in all the areas of my life, whether work or school, home, church, amongst friends and public, etc.? Let's audit whether we are serving our self-image and the opinions that we want people to have of us, if that's more powerful than the way that God is looking at our hearts. Do we care more about the exterior than our character growth? How much attention is going into how much people think about us versus how much we are growing in Christ-likeness? I always grew up feeling like I was immune to this struggle, that I didn't ever change my behavior because of other people's opinions of me. I used to always say, I don't care what people think about me. And I, and I wore that as like a badge of honor. And in, it's obviously not true. But in the, the reason why I, I told myself it was true and why I felt like it was true, because it was only true in one small uh, way that I thought was everything, the entire way. And that's just a physical, like literal physical appearance. I don't care if you don't think I'm handsome or if I'm ugly. I don't care what like clothes I wear. I could like, if you find anybody on the planet who cares less about brands than me, like I don't care what car I drive, like, you know, it's just not my personality. And so because of that, just the physical appearance stuff, I used to think, I don't care what people think about me. And, and, I, and I really did like wear that as a badge of honor, like, like very stupidly like proud. But then I realized as life went on and I grew up a little bit that it's not just about physical appearance that we, you know, where we long for people, we care so much about how people think about us. And in college, there was this one experience that really shaped uh, my understanding of this. So it's the end of my freshman year. It's finals time. Like I'm about to go home in a few days. It's December just experienced my first semester in college. And in high school, I, I was the whole, like, oh, I don't care about grades and, like, too cool for school. And that carried over, right? It's not like I, I flipped a switch at that point. I, it carried over. So my freshman year, yeah, I went to class, but I just didn't care that much. 
I was playing it off as like too cool for school. And so we're in final season again. We just finished a class, and I'm on the bus going back to our dorm with three guys that I took the class with. And I wasn't real. I was just listening, but they all started talking openly about what grade they got in the class. And they all either had an A minus or an A. In the back of my mind, I knew that at best I would get a B minus, but my final would determine whether I get a B minus or C plus. And all these guys, these three guys, they had an A minus or an A. It was the first time I got really triggered with, wait, I do care what people think about me. And it, and it wasn't how I looked. It wasn't if I had the cool brands or if my sneakers were Jordans or anything like that. It was whether people thought I was smart or dumb. I didn't end up telling them my grade, but I sat there thinking, I don't want you to know what grade I had because you're going to assume that I'm not as smart as you but I am. It's just that I didn't try. You know, like, it, like it's that, that pride. I didn't want people to think of me as unintelligent. And so from that moment, that's when the flip was switched hard. I would prove the rest of college that I am the smartest person in the room. For the rest of college, grades became my severe idol. And it wasn't because I needed good grades. Some people work really, really hard for good grades because they need to distinguish themselves and get into med school or law school or something. I didn't need that. I was going to seminary. You don't need that good grades. <laughs> and I certainly, I wish I was, I certainly wasn't mature enough that I was studying hard because of the opportunity God provided for me in higher education and to the glory of God. It wasn't that. I was studying hard to prove that I was smart. And I graduated. I did really, really well because of the, it was my idol. And I went straight into seminary. I graduated in May. By August, I was already in the dorms at Gordon-Conwell. And so this carried over. Now I was in a master's program, which would be way harder. But I carried this mentality. I am here, and I am going to crush every class that I ever take. One evening, early in October, you know, I'd barely been there at seminary. I was in the prayer chapel. And thank God for prayer chapels where God meets us and humbles us. I felt like I had this experience where I was just conversing with God, and he, he asked me very bluntly, why did you come here? Like, who are you competing with? What's your goal? Are you trying to prove something to somebody or puff up your pride by getting a 4.0? Like, what's your, what's your objective here? Did you really apply and, and come to seminary just to crush classes and feel, oh, I'm so smart? Or are you here to learn how to be a pastor, to, to learn how to lead from a servant position, to learn how to teach and preach my word so that my children can understand it and know me a little bit better. So that you can learn how to shepherd people and counsel them when they're in their journey of faith or in difficult times or asking big questions. Why are you here? And, and God humbled me real good. And I realized that I was hungrier for the respect than I was for holiness. And I needed God to intervene and challenge my striving for appearances. And the twisted part is it's not like I was even telling people my grades. It was all internal. I wasn't going around being like, guess what I got on the test. It was all this internal struggle for I need to know that I'm good enough and smart enough. But God reminded me in that moment, if your character is not growing and is junk, I don't care about your stupid grades. 
It's useless to me. I care about your heart. Are you really going to get good grades at the expense of you learning here? And so from that moment, by the grace of God, my goal in seminary shifted. I didn't care about my transcript anymore. I cared about learning as much as I could. I didn't want to leave seminary more accomplished. I was praying, God, help me to graduate seminary more holy, to be more like you, to be a better equipped pastor for any church that trusts me enough to hire me that they wouldn't be getting somebody who cared about A's, but somebody who cared about them growing in your word. And it's crazy. You would think that people who go to seminary, their devotion would be so undivided. No, it was super divided until God intervened and changed my heart perspective. And maybe this is the moment for the Lord to do that for you. When you think about your studies or your job, your working, your pursuit of your career or growth in your career, your relationships, you know, your pursuit of those, any, even hobbies, like anything in this camp, how much is your heart divided? How much of it are you doing for God or how much of it are you doing to prove something to yourself, to somebody else, to gain a certain place of status socially, to have a certain salary or title on your business card. What is it? In your studying or your working, are we undivided in our devotion? This is for you, God. You provided for me this opportunity, and therefore I do it unto you and for your glory. In how we spend, how we steward our finances, or like make more money, how much of it is, is, is so that we can have the nice things and look a certain way or, or gain the respect of our parents and like see what I did and you didn't believe in me? Or is it, God, you've provided all this for me. I gain, I earn, and I spend, and I save, and I whatever to your glory. What about our relationship socially? Even things like serving at church or being involved or relationships with others, and our friendships, and our marriages, and everything in between. How much of it is, God, I do this so that you would be glorified, have my heart? Or how much of it is, I really hope people think blank about me? <clears throat> this story that Jesus shares and comparing the, or uh, that took place, that Mark shares, um, was the Tuesday of the original Holy Week where Jesus looks at the Pharisees and then the rich people, and then he looks at the poor widow. He gathers his disciples around. And he says, this is it. She gave everything. Her heart was undivided in devotion to God. This was Tuesday. Just three days later, he would die and suffer a gruesome and torturous death on the cross. So he points to a human example and a great one of discipleship that she gave everything that she had to live on monetarily. And then Jesus takes it up another notch in showing us an even greater way by giving up his entire life, by sacrificing his own life, showing complete, undivided devotion to the Father, which results in undivided love and acceptance for us. Because of his undivided devotion to give up his own life, you and I receive undivided love and acceptance, a whole and pure and, and, and divine acceptance and love from God when we place our faith in him. This Lenten season, 
we have plenty of things to reflect on. But something I want to challenge all of us to, to reflect on and audit this week as, as, you know, again, Good Friday and Easter are coming is, is a very simple question that if you grew up in the church, you've probably heard a million times. It's simply, who are you living for? You know, it's a, when, when I was in seminary in the prayer chapel, God asked me the simple question, why are you here? Translate that into your life. Why are you doing what you're doing? Why are you slaving away at the office longer than you need to? Why are you so driven and obsessed with your grades? Why? Just ask yourself that question. Is it for God or is it for someone or something or maybe our own expectations we have of ourselves? This demographic right here, we are a busy and driven people. We are the demographic of people who have a lot going on in life, who have aspirations and goals, who have a lot of expectations on you, and who have a lot of responsibilities, whether given you or you place on your own plate. We are the people of dreams and hopes for the future, plans and activities going on in the present. Every week, our calendar is littered with things that we have to go to. Let's ask ourselves whether all these things are a result of our devotion or a result of needing to keep up, needing to be a certain person, whether for somebody else's opinion or even our own. Friends, I remind us all today, and I hope for the thousandth time in your life, that Jesus gave up his life for you and for me so that we could have life eternally. We have that status secure forever. So how much money we make, the grades we get, the job we end up with, the possessions we have, the neighborhood we live in, the education you receive, none of that will matter. He's looking at our hearts. He doesn't care about the appearances. He's already given you more treasure than a rich salary would ever give. And he's ready and willing to give more, more joy, more pleasure Let's let go of this chasing after keeping up with this. Some, some of you, it's real people that you're competing against. And all the, all the rest, we're just boxing imaginary foes. We've already been given everything that we need in Christ. So let's live as people who really believe that. We have everything in him. And we can live undivided in our devotion to him. So let's take a moment to pray before uh, we close <clears throat> in singing. I don't know if, if the Lord will, you know, directly ask you your question. I mean, you can ask it to yourself right now. What are you striving for right now? And just ask why. I hope for a lot of us it's for good reason. Um, but I know for many of us, we just need to keep reminding ourselves and challenging that reason. Is it for me? Is it for someone else? Is it to gain approval, acceptance, or is it for you, Lord? Let's do that spiritual auditing now with whatever comes to your heart and seems to be the most demanding of your effort, of your attention, of your energy. It could be school. It could be work. I mean, those are kind of the easy, big things. 
It could certainly be social things, even clubs and, and, and volunteering and, and showing up to things and, and how we act to certain people because we really want them to respect us. It can be anything. What is it for you that you're striving for? And let's present that before God. Let's pray and ask the Holy Spirit to help us to just live for him and for him alone. Lord, you've been so good to us. And you provide for us more than any aspiration or dream or accomplishment in this lifetime could ever, ever come close to. We want to live for you. We don't want to be prisoner or beholden to the expectations of people or even ourselves, our own expectations. We want to see ourselves as you do as precious children who you died to save, who you gave up everything to welcome and to adopt and embrace. We're the richest people in the world. We're the most blessed people on this earth because of what you've done for us. And so we don't want to be shackled to expectations that maybe our parents or our society or our friends group or whatever, anything or anybody has of us. We just want to do everything to please our Heavenly Father and to be able to delight in the true satisfaction of a life that has lived for you, someone who can satisfy us the more um, time goes on, as opposed to living for the expectations of others, which will drain us the more life goes on. So, Lord, I want to pray for freedom for everybody in this room. I want to pray for your loving and gentle intervention for anybody who feels like they're a prisoner to having to get the right status or grades or salary or, or number of friends or car or house or whatever. Provide for us freedom. Detach our hearts from these things. And would you help us latch on to you, the true fount of joy and purpose and meaning. Lord, we want to be like the poor widow where we could give, you know, we, we could care less about how people in the temple courts look at us as the lowest person in society, but as someone that you look upon proudly and just giving our undivided devotion to you. And so as we continue in Lent, in this season of just being so 
ready and eager to reflect on and and celebrate Resurrection Sunday. I pray uh, this week, especially, that you just draw our attention, Lord, to living for you alone and being able to experience the true satisfaction and joy that comes in that. So would you grant that to us, Holy Spirit, the freedom and then the joy. And would all these things be to your glory, to your honor and praise, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.